This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. My guest today is Jason Murchie. Jason is an author and a philosopher who has penned a number of books. We talk about nearly all of them in the episode today, but his books include Value and Ethics, Wisdom, Building a Life of Value, and Living a Life of Value. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Jason and I share a, a similar love of words. In fact, Jason has a fantastic website called valuesofthewise.com. And on that website, he has a searchable database of quotes, more than 35,000, in fact, that can be searched at any time for a variety of subjects. They're all cataloged by author and ethnicity, and it is just a fantastic resource. In fact, as I mentioned in the episode, I found I find a number of the quotes that I bring to you and add to my own quote book from that very website. So I encourage you to take a look at that and also pick up Jason's books as they are a fantastic resource. They're very well written. Jason, you'll hear, is very well spoken. One note for the listeners, I apologize for the sound quality today of my track. Jason and I spoke, and there was no indication of it at the time, but it turns out that the audio on my side was a little bit questionable. I did the best that I could to clean it up so that it is clean enough to listen to. You'll notice it's not perfect, but I think the words that Jason spoke, far more than the words that I did, are so valuable that even if the audio was compromised, I wanted to present it to you, the listener. So... Please do enjoy, and without further ado, my guest, Jason Murchie. All right, Jason Murchie, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, I'm happy to join you. Jason, you and I came uh, came to meet each other uh, electronically, as people tend to do these days. Uh, you reached mm-hmm. out to the uh, to the to the podcast. You uh, you said you had found it, um, and that you were actually an author of what I've come to find is an outstanding book um, called "Building a Life of Value: Timeless Wisdom to Inspire and Empower Us." So I'm a little curious, and maybe you can let the listeners know a little bit of your background, your history, and and then we can jump into the book itself. Okay. Well, I uh, I consider myself a uh, philosophical thinker, um, and I have a master's degree in psychology, um, a little counseling experience. I did um, get a philosophy and ethics certificate just in 2019. I, I love the great books and I'm going to uh, do some more education this fall on, you know, basically wisdom and uh, the things that those classics, you know, the Wuthering Heights and Moby Dick and, you know, the Iliad, things like this that, you know, still have a lot to teach, even though they're sitting silently on bookshelves if we read them and and you know, take them seriously and talk about them and learn about them. They can yield these amazing, timeless insights that can help us. So that's typically, or excuse me, that's basically, you know, who I am in a nutshell. I, I live in uh, Western North Carolina with my wife. Um, I have published four books. Um, Building Life of Value is actually kind of an old timer, but um, unless you disagree, <clears throat> I would maintain that uh, it's it's got a long shelf life because. Uh, you know, it's uh, obviously if a quotation from Socrates or, um, you know, Cicero has stuck around thousands of years uh, and I put those types of things in that book, 
they're not going to wear out in 2023 or 2024, you know? So, uh, um, but uh, my latest book is about wisdom uh, specifically and uh, has a lot more of me in it. By that, I mean, um, it's sort of a combination of um, philosophy and psychology and personal growth and a lot of opinions of mine, especially opinions about some of the contemporary things that we face uh, as Americans. For, as you know, uh, not only do we have challenges that any other human beings would have, you know, I'm talking about human beings from ancient Greece, China, the time of, you know, Confucius, but fast forward, we've also got uniquely American problems. So I kind of delve into that in that book, but building life of value is kind of, uh, it's just, it's kind of like bread and butter uh, as far as um, wisdom values, virtues, quotations uh, are concerned. It's like um, kind of uh, inarguable stuff, but there is a lot of room to you know take quotes one at a time, which is basically the design of the book and think about, you know, what do you think about the, that particular quote? Uh, what does it remind you of? Um, have you heard quotes like that in the past? Different quotes perhaps, and, and you want to, you know, play them off of each other, see how they relate. Think about who said you know, a certain quotation and, you know, always, always trying to remember that uh, these quotes are, are there for, for the purpose of communicating what an ostensibly wise individual uh, or other, but, you know, typically somebody, you know, your, your Gandhi's, Winston Churchill's, uh, Helen Keller's, you know, folks that you, you should be, you know, you should have respect and, and uh, admiration for because they went through it in a big way and, and they put down some of the things they thought were most important in writing. And so I think it's, you know, extremely important to, to try to keep track of those things and not forget. It, w- it would be absolutely foolish if we stopped listening to Aristotle simply because, you know, Athens held slaves or if we didn't uh, care about Thomas Jefferson anymore uh, because, you know, he uh, had, you know, an illicit sexual relationship with uh, somebody who probably wasn't consenting. You know, I mean, we can criticize those things and we should, but, uh, you know, if that person also virtually crafted the uh the uh declaration of independence it's uh it's part of our history that must be preserved in a way i think yeah i i couldn't agree with you more and you you bring up a couple of interesting points there and maybe it's a good stepping off point to 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 step into the book but you you referenced you know the challenges that we have just as human beings right there's just a fundamental set of challenges that every person regardless of whether they lived five thousand years ago or 15 minutes ago they they've experienced a set of challenges they have a set of dreams they have a set of desires and they also have just an inherent to the human condition set of difficulties that they're going to have to deal with and that's a that's an interesting um perspective on things and i think it helps to remember sometimes because as we look at you know folks of old whether it be the aristotles or the thomas jeffersons the benjamin franklins the you know the mark twains they they all had the same kind of problems now we're not hunter gatherers we're not farmers you know we're not an agrarian society in the way that we once were so the challenges are different but some of those fundamental challenges exist regardless of what millennium or century in which you in which you live so right. when you when you Take a step into the book itself. Um, the book for the for the listener who hasn't seen it is is fourteen chapters, and each one of the chapters has a theme. It actually, as I was as I was reading through it recently, um, it it reminded me of a fantastic book that I read last year, David White's Consolations, no, which is uh, 
Yep, he's a he's a fantastic writer, and his book Constellations is is set up similarly. Each chapter is about a single word, and okay. he kind of goes into poetic prose, as it were, about those individual words. And you do the same thing with themes, and then you tie in quotes that are related to those. So you open each chapter with a, a little bit of a description, your your kind of take on that. And then there's a, a, a series of quotes, dozens in some cases in the chapters, if not more. And then you, you kind of put a bow on it at the end of each. And it's the kind of book that is, and maybe I'm Maybe this is just me, but I'm all, I'm wondering if it was intended to be read as a straight through type book, or did you intend more for people to look at the 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 list of of chapters and then select something that they were particularly interested in or was particularly important to them at the time, and then have them dive into that particular section? It's the latter. I don't know if you've heard of um, the E Jing. It's spelled I space C H I N G. It's the ancient uh, Chinese book that is sort of like the longest fortune cookie uh, fortunes you've you've ever read it'll be you know a long paragraph a page two pages of stuff that if you come across randomly it sort of acts almost almost like a good kind of astrology or whatever um in that whatever you're facing if you tor- if you open the eijing and you have that in mind the answer that you, the, the quotation, the summation of wisdom that is, you know, uh, on the particular page you're looking at usually sometimes amazingly has something to do with what you're experiencing, which is kind of why, you know, I, I related to a horoscope, right? Cause horoscopes are general enough that you can project onto it what you're experiencing. So, um, the Ching is, is kind of reminiscent of the book in that, you know, if you look at the table of contents or, you know, the index or whatever, you can, you, you'll hit on something, um, be it, a, you know, a, a value, a virtue, the name of, of an individual who said something that I uh, included in the book. And you can go to that page, think about that and, and, you know, just kind of let your mind, uh, let your mind run because right after that quote, there's another one and they may have only one thing in common what they have in common, in my opinion, is the value in question. So, you know, the chapters are divided up th- sort of like strength and courage, wisdom, education, and knowledge, uh, creativity, ingenuity, and vision, dedication, discipline, and responsibility, excuse me, de- dedication, responsibility, and will, humor, and lightheartedness. So if Mark Twain said something and then Lucretia Mott, the you know famous uh, suffragette, said something else. They might only have that one thing in common. They're talking about liberty, for example. Other than that, they're completely different, born in different times, maybe different races, uh, in, in quotes, uh, you know, ethnicities, um, different religions. Maybe they would be ideologically quite opposed to each other. Because, you know, I, I happen to be uh, pretty much liberal politically, but I'll quote people like Ayn Rand, um, you know, maybe some of the the uh, Chicago school economists, you know, maybe somebody like Winston Churchill was sort of more conservative than, than not. Uh, why? Because there are things that we can agree on. You know, I like liberty as well. Uh, so when you think about something like the, you know, discussions about abortion or, or gun um, restrictions or uh, immigration, it's best to break those things down into values, you know, and, and that way liberals and conservatives can more easily talk to each other. You know, what value are you talking about? You know, maybe somebody 
if it's the, the abortion debate, somebody will say, I think a woman should have the liberty, right? It should be underlined, the freedom to do what they want with their body. The other side might say, well, people, of course, have certain liberties in society, but do those liberties include taking another human life? Um, that's basically sanctity of life or something, some value along those lines, uh, respect for, for life or a great desire to do what you believe God wants you to do, for example. So if we, if we frame our discussions like that, it becomes a little less, you know, incendiary to be kind of like, I like liberty. You like liberty. <clears throat> Let's talk about liberty from the highest level, the most respectful uh, level that we can share what what we each think about liberty, and then, you know, as societies have been doing for millennia, try to be able to have governance in that society. Because if you can't agree on some fundamental things, your society is you know in in deep trouble. Uh, agreed. And you know, it's an interesting stepping off point for any conversation to agree on a set of principles. Because I think oftentimes it's, and I'm sure you've seen this as much as anybody has. I don't, I think it's very easy to demonize the perceived opponent to our point of view, whatever that happens to be. And the idea of leveling the playing field by taking it down to what scientists would call first principles and saying, okay, in the example that you gave, the liberty versus sanctity of life. Both of those are very, very valid foundational principles from which to build a worldview. And it's easy to say, well, if you think that a woman's liberty extends to the ability to end another person's life, then you're a bad person. And on the other side, if sanctity of life is so important to you that you're willing to take away somebody's liberty for it, then you're a bad person. And in reality, neither one of those people is necessarily fundamentally a bad person. They have a worldview framed off of a set of principles that are prioritized. Because if we take your 14 chapters, each of them with some of them with multiple um, uh, titles, and we look at those and we said, those are all principles. They can't all be your paramount principle, right? Not each and every one of them can't be the most important thing to you. And at some point, if you explore yourself, explore the world around you, explore the thoughts of others and interrogate those things, you're going to find some of those are in competition with one another. And that forces a hierarchy of those principles and getting people to the point where they can say, look, you're not a bad person, Jason, because we disagree. And I'm not a bad person because we disagree. We have a different priority of first principles from which we argue and defend our positions. But even getting people to that point in modern discourse, and as you as you said, this is not a new problem, right? For as long as people have been able to communicate with one another, there have been disagreements. And mm. so getting people to a foundational level where they can have intelligent conversations is no small feat. And your, your book does yes. a great job of that because the ability to outsource the thoughts to others and say, well... Thomas Jefferson said this. Well, okay, that's fine. I see that. And I see that Anise Nin said this. And those two might be in opposition to one another. And that's okay. But those, the ability to outsource some of those first principles to a more eloquent speaker or writer is oftentimes a, a good point to start a conversation. I've had many of the best conversations have been built around, hey, I found this quote really interesting. What do you think about it? It right. takes it out of me, right? I didn't say those things. And we're now arguing about the words of somebody from history. We're now arguing about what Marcus Aurelius said and, and debating and and conversing and discussing about that particular topic instead of Matt thinks this and therefore all the things that get attributed to Matt being a person infallible and all of the things that I am 
I can then say, well, let's talk about Marcus Aurelius instead, and let's use him as the as the foundation, the principle that he was talking about that we both maybe like the quote for different reasons and go from there. Is that is that one of the byproducts or perhaps an intentional product of the book itself? Yeah, and just kind of fundamentally, um, an individual, even a smart individual, is limited in how the depth to which they can, you know, the degree to which they can really grasp true wisdom. You do want to look to your forebearers to say, you know, teach me. I mean, if you think about the Buddha, everybody wanted to come see the Buddha, right? Why? Because he was the enlightened one and they wanted to learn. They, you know, if the, if, if the human mind didn't want to learn from people that they respect, the, the wise among us, then the Buddha would have probably died underneath the Bodhi tree out of boredom because nobody would have paid him any attention. I think on the one hand, you know, this is, this is basically wisdom in action. You want to root what you believe and what you think in, um, you know, sources, be they individuals or perhaps scripture, if that's your thing, find your values in, in things that are already there. Don't reinvent the wheel, right? Uh, Jesus talked about charity and benevolence and love and things like this. You can't come up with something better than love. And if you want to, you know, come from a religious perspective, you can't come up with a better person to quote about love than Jesus. So there you go. You know, pyramids have already been built, right? Go to the, walk to the top of it. If you want to see what you can see from that height, don't start building your own pyramid so you can walk to the top of it and see what you can see. On the other hand, you always have to take responsibility for yourself and because I'm not William Chur- uh, Winston Churchill, you know, you're not Epictetus. They might have things that they can share that they believed were wisdom and worth, you know, writing or, or teaching. That's great. But it's always up to you because, you know, some people would be, would be standing on terra firma to say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't give the founding fathers in quotes that much credence because my God, they held slaves or, you know, you might look at John Adams and think he was so flawed or whatever. Um, and that's up, that's up to you. You have to take the responsibility, responsibility to be like, how do I find what I believe in? What gives my life meaning? What am I fulfilled by? What are my moral stances generally? Um, and that's always up to the person. Uh, you know, that's essentially what the law says, right? You can't say, yes, I did this crime, but I'm not really responsible for it because I don't, you know, it wasn't really my doing somebody told me to or somebody paid me or whatever it's always going to land on the individual you know did you pull that trigger or did you not uh, regardless of what your influences were with the only exception being um you know a person's non-accomplished mentis they can't understand what they did but if you can understand what you did you're responsible for it it's the same way with your values and the moral choices you make that's one of the reasons why uh, i think that the um, pro-choice perspective on abortion has, you know, holds water to some degree. And, and I'm, I'm, I'd like to add that I'm a little bit moderate about abortion rights, but it holds water because, you know, the individual has to make that decision, right? They can take guidance from the law or they can take guidance from their pastor or their husband or whatever. But, you know, if they were raped, there's only one person in the universe who has the right to make a decision about whether to keep a, a one, a two month old fetus. And that's the individual. Yeah. And you touch on, and obviously this is a, this is a hot button topic at the moment. And of course it's relatively 
Although not as we've, as many of us have learned over the last few months since this has been brought back into the spotlight is this is not, even this is not a new problem, right? We Mm -hmm. talked about a little bit about problems that have existed throughout time. I mean, my wife constantly references um, a show that she likes to watch called Call the Midwife. And it's about um, 18th or 19th and 20th century England. And one of the storylines throughout has been the the legalization, which eventually came to England long before it did here, of abortion and they, the challenges that those midwives faced, you know, receiving somebody who attempted their own at-home abortion and then had to be saved or potentially not by the, the midwives in, in the story. And so this is not something new. This doesn't just exist from the moment that Roe versus Wade was originally right. settled and has since been undone. Um, it's been around for as long as people have been bearing children. There have always been situations where a mother has had a difficult decision or faced a difficult life choice. And different cultures, different backgrounds, people with a different framework have handled these situations differently. And we see that even today, even as archaic as some folks may feel like the most recent ruling was by the Supreme Court here in the United States, there are countries where it is more restricted than it is here and certainly less restricted than it is here. So we still, there's still, and there always will be a spectrum of responses to some of these fundamental challenges that people have. So I, I appreciate the uh, the insight on that. I think that's a very wise, um, you know, we're talking about wisdom here. It's a very wise and um, very complete picture that you're painting of how to arrive at these difficult and make these difficult decisions. Yeah, some of them can be gruelingly difficult. I mean, if you've ever had to, if if a person has ever had to shoot an intruder or uh, abort a fetus, as we've been discussing, won the lottery or develop cancer, et cetera, et cetera. You know, maybe drunk driving hit somebody. These things can be just of the, uh, you know, most massive proportions in your life, how they rock you to the core, how important they are, how significant they are. They're big decisions. And then when big things happen, that's when we need to call on our values to uh, help us. That's one of the things I like so much about, so you know, some of these movies like maybe Dunkirk or whatever, where, the Nazis, which basically were like evil personified, more or less, when they were bearing down on England, England was like, you know, I think they basically uh, took a poll and said, Winston Churchill believes we should fight, you know, fight, 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 fight until we get pushed into the ocean and never surrender. Um, do you agree with that? And I think 98% of people agree with that, right? So they just, the English people were like, there's absolutely no way we're going to surrender to the Nazis, you know? That's craziness. Forget it. Not going to happen. We'd rather be dead. And so that's a big decision. And you got to back yourself up because if you say no to the Nazis, you're in for it. You know what I mean? Ask France, Czechoslovakia, you know what I mean? The low countries. It's, I mean, huge decisions. Uh, so that's one of the reasons I find history so interesting and, mo- and morality so interesting because, you know, they're, that's when the volume is turned way up when you have to decide some very, you know, between two very significant, uh, different uh, choices. And you hit, you hit on something very interesting there is, and I think it's, it's pretty apparent to anybody that listens to this podcast, but we're big here on the idea of, of self-improvement, the idea of, of building a better you, going to bed at night better than you woke up in the morning and having tomorrow be slightly better than today. And sometimes those are, those are minuscule, hard to register changes. But the idea that 
we have a saying in the Marine Corps um, that people don't rise to the occasion. They revert to how they're trained, right? So the idea in these situations where you have these major world powers, some of the most difficult moments in human history, recorded human history, for example, that decision by England in World War II to do we do we play the pacifist? Do we try to assuage the crazy man across the across the sea? Or do we stand and we fight? And I mean, the intro to this podcast has a quote from Winston Churchill. Okay. And we've talked about him before. And it's the fight on the beaches quote, right? When he yeah. rallies the yeah. country and he says, We will fight on the beaches. We will fight them wherever they come. We will never surrender. And that is built upon that. That was not a person rising to the occasion. That was not a country that had never considered or or had anything to inform that decision, having to make a split second decision. That's built on a national framework of principles that they all rallied around in that moment. And so, too, I think, do we as people, as we go through life and we're faced with the challenges, if you've never done the mental calculus and you've never projected into the future and imagined a difficult decision that may come your way, that your your own empathetic imagination fails you in that moment to not prepare for the unforeseen. Um, and I think that's part of what makes the individual chapters of your book so interesting to me, because there you have in the span of anywhere from five to 10 pages of quotes on a specific topic that are thought provoking and drive you to consider that these quotes taken across a broad and deep selection of writers and speakers throughout history, all coalesce around this topic. And if you, I don't know how somebody could, but if you were to pick up that chapter, I don't know how you could read through the first chapter on wisdom, education, and knowledge and not think deeply about what do I know? Like you, you talk about how knowledge, you use a quote in there, I believe, and I'm paraphrasing here, correct me if I'm wrong, but knowledge can be found to be false, but wisdom is always correct. And wisdom is the is the synthesis of all of these various inputs over time, um, whether they be quotes or readings or principles, parenting, church, uh, friend groups that all kind of help shape you to the point where you have not just knowledge, you have individual pieces of knowledge from those places, but the wisdom that comes from having considered a multitude uh, of possibilities that lead you to be considered a wise person as opposed to just somebody who knows something. Right. Um, <clears throat> I, I find wisdom endlessly fascinating. I remember that Robert Sternberg, a famous psychological researcher, has made a, he made a big splash in the 80s, I think, maybe 70s, for studying intelligence. And he noted that, you know, you, you look at these guys like um, the executives from Enron um, or Stalin or some of these cult leader types or sociopaths or, you know, whatever. It's like, it's amazing how intelligent some of these people are. Literally, there was a, a book written about the Enron uh, leadership called The Smartest Guys in the Room. As in, we here at Enron hire the smartest people you can find. And if you're speaking with, if you're in a party with somebody who works at Enron, the CEO, you know, the vice president, that person's the smartest in the room. They're that good. Uh, and yet it was just astoundingly, you know, immoral and detached from all good values, what they did with that company, especially for these poor folks who bought stock in the company that they worked for. That's like the stock they owned is Enron stock because they were so excited about it. 
And look what happened to, to, to their nest egg completely mm-hmm. destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, Bernie Madoff was obviously very intelligent, very intelligent because of how many people he was able to bilk. And so, you know, there, there's a big difference between being intelligent and being wise. Intelligence can, can get you to the moon, right? But it can also imagine how, how often Hitler was sitting there working with all these intelligent generals of his trying to figure out how to destroy the world. Maybe not destroy, but create a third Reich that would rule for a thousand years, no matter what it had to roll over with its panzer tank. So that's not wisdom at all. That's, that's only um, things like information, knowledge, intelligence. I'm going to reference the Marine Corps again here because, you know, in our entry level training, as officers, um, one of the things that we, I, I assume they still get it at entry-level training. It's uh, it's a six-month school down at Quantico, Virginia, and the there are a variety of courses and lectures, and a lot of it's canned, and there's, you know, the basic tactical lessons that need to be learned. But one of the, one of the lectures that I remember sitting through that, you know, it elicits an, a number of chuckles from people, but there is a quote about there's no reason why as a brand new officer in the military about to be in charge of Marines and make decisions that can be life or death, that that as the phrase goes, your mind can't be 3000 years old. You know, you may be 21, 22 years old, but the collective wisdom of the world, right? The lessons of leaders and thinkers and philosophers throughout history is available at your fingertips now more so than ever. And so uh, part of the profession of arms, literally, the, you know, the, the profession part of it is the constant study and improvement based on lessons learned in the past. That's why all of the major services have reading lists for their officers and enlisted uh, personnel. And the purpose of that is to shape a way of thinking that is it's, it's not doctrinal. There's certainly doctrine built in there, but it is intended to prepare you for the unknowable and the unknown in the future so that you have that existing wisdom of the ages that you have collected and analyzed, digested, and synthesized into your own approach to what are the unforeseen challenges of the future battlefield. And taken out of the military context, we have the same thing in every professional environment, be it education or finance or any of any number of them, that people who are arguably the smartest people in the room are the most well-read for a reason because they're not fully dependent on their own internal monologues, their own internal thought processes, but other people who have dealt with similar or maybe not so similar situations inform the way that they make decisions. Yeah. I like the, uh, the concept of, you know, um, study what happened during the Peloponnesian war and how the Athenians and the Spartans and their allies conducted themselves and learn about, you know, theory of how to, how to fight and so on and so forth. But, but then set that all aside, you know, try to internalize it, not memorize it and then set it aside because it's going to be you out there. You know, you're going to be in the desert. The winds are going to be howling sands, you know, coming through your tent. Uh, something's wrong with one of your men uh, or women um, you got maybe, uh, an order you don't, you don't really love this, that, and the other, you just pile up the, the variables and the details and the nuances. There's no rule book that says when 10 variables like this stack up, here's what you do, do X. That's how a computer thinks. And computers are very 
you know, quote, intelligent and they can move at lightning speed, but you can't get a computer to make the same decisions that you can get an, an army of, excuse me, a military uh, officer who has read, you know, Herodotus and, you know, Ulysses Grant and uh, all these individuals, maybe Sun Tzu. I don't know what, I don't know exactly what, what would be studied, but the point is you don't invent all of those things. How to, how to conduct, um, you know, battles and protect the lives of your mm-hmm. soldiers um, by shooting from the hip and just kind of making it up or whatever. By the same token, you know, um, just because Lincoln said this, Pershing said that, it's only going to get you so far when it's like, you know, make it or break it time. You know, the, the sand is flowing through the hourglass and people look at you. What do we do? What are we going to do? Um, I love the movie um, 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 Valkyrie. Just such an interesting look at all this type of stuff. You know, it's that Tom Cruise movie that came out when he, he played a mm-hmm. officer who tried to kill Adolf Hitler. One of, you know, 18 attempts on his life or whatever. You start kind of sweating bullets just simply watching it. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you spoke of um, Ulysses S. Grant. The, the modern military is never going to be in a massed formation outside of Gettysburg fighting in the apple orchards the way that he was. You know, we're <laughs> never going, the Navy's never going to, to <laughs> the, you know, the Navy is never going to cross the T the way that, you know, they did at, at Trafalgar and, and those type of things. But in studying those things, you see the decision-making process. And I think that's why, and it, I, I, I've gone back and I've looked at the, the, the podcast episodes that I've done, and a lot of them, partially because I, of my own background, are related to military leaders. And I think part of the reason for that is because the not only are the words that they speak and the words that they write, whether it's in orders or journals or personal correspondence back home, um, is right there for you to see. We can see the same thing with Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and, and any number of other people. But the real life consequences of those decisions are studied and analyzed throughout time and memoriam ever since then. So you get to see not only how the decision was made, but then you can look even deeper and say, well, why was, what was the context at the moment? And, you know, drawing us back to, you know, the, the book and, and the quotations that you have therein, I wonder if you, if you worry at all that the, the quotes, because um, I worry about this in the episodes, is that without the context, without the background of who the speaker is and who they were speaking to and what their audience was and their intended um, target, can those words be taken out of context? Can there potentially, are, are you ever concerned that people that read that take those words out of context and, and, and misuse them in the pursuit of, a, of, a, of, of an end, even if it's an altruistic end? Yes, and that's why the individual always has the ultimate responsibility uh, in that existential sense of you can't you can't point to a quote and relieve yourself of the responsibility for what you have done, um, right? Because it's if it were if it were a trial, the prosecutor would say, "Sir, that's just black writing on white paper." What do you mean? What do you mean you did what was written? You know, um, are you, you know, do you have delusional disorder? Did you take orders from so-and-so from the past? I mean, what do you mean? You you know what I mean? So you'll never be able to say, I did this because it was commanded. That's why I'm not a huge um, lover of the Bible, except for, you know, the idea that the parables provide grist for your mental mill. You can, you can think about some things, but, you know, the answers 
aren't there in in a sense, right? It's almost like the questions are there and there are stories that elucidate the questions or the values, whatever, but the answers aren't there, uh, which is, you know, it's, it's a cautionary tale for folks who would go to church on Sunday and think, you know, cool, I got some answers and I'm going to do exactly what this person tells me to do. And I'm going to feel I'm great about myself when I leave here. And because that's, you know, that's a shallow level of, of understanding yourself and your values and why you believe what you believe. If you believe in mercy and if you believe in um, charity, whatever, you know, it's got to be, it's got to run deep. It can't just be based on, you know, there's these six quotes I like that I'm trying to follow or whatever. It's like, go beyond that, you know, learn what is to be taught. You know, I think that's kind of a Buddhist concept is like, you can listen to my teaching. However, it's going to have to be you who does the meditating and it's you who acts with compassion. You have to know why to act with compassion. You can't just do it because I said compassion is better than meanness uh, or selfishness, right? So internalize it deeply, so deeply that you almost get like intuitive about it, almost kind of like martial artist style level of understanding so that, you know, you can have a blindfold on and defend yourself which I guess I don't even know if that's a, a real thing. But if you're that good at the art of self-defense, you can, you know, fight four people. You could fight two people with knives. You could fight with, you know, blindfolded, whatever. If you're that wise that you know all of this stuff that has stood the test of time and that you really thought through and that you really wholeheartedly believe in, then go out there in the world and show us what you got because the world's going to be rough with you. But the wiser you are, the more successful you're going to be. But it's all about you. You know, what do you take responsibility for? What studying have you done? What um, pain and suffering have you undergone? And and you know, show us show us what you have now. Definitely. And I I want to point out, and I want to I want to hit it again because I liked the phrase so much. But you made the you made reference to a phrase that I'm going to steal. Um, I may put it on my tombstone one day. But the idea of grist for your mental mill. I mean, that's a that's a fantastic concept for what your book provides. What I hope that this this podcast provides to folks is not you're not going to find all the answers inside your book. You're not going to build, you know, a, a perfect life of value just from reading Jason's book. Sorry, listener, if that's what you thought. Um, you're also not going to become the perfect leader, uh, the perfect thinker, the perfect parent or friend or whatever from listening to this podcast either. The idea here is to prompt thought and to arrive at conclusions from a preponderance of evidence reinforced by the words and thoughts and deeds of others. I'm curious, Jason, in the in the process of putting together the book itself, certainly if I flip through the pages, I'm sure I can find someone in this book with a challenging background, somebody who maybe thought differently than we do today or had principles or ideas or maybe even took actions that we would find reprehensible today. So how do you square presenting the words of that person? Because this is something that I've struggled with as well on the podcast is, you know, we've we've looked at Benjamin Franklin notorious philanderer, drunk, um, all kinds of, of problems there. You know, the Ulysses S. Grant, great general, questionably effective president, you know, challenges in his background and some of the others, you know, they, they, I, we've done episodes about people who believed in eugenics. You know, we're talking about scientists and thinkers of the 19th century who, folks who believed in phrenology, which has been 
debunked time and time again, challenging individuals with principles and ideas and actions that maybe we would find reprehensible today. How did you square giving them a platform via your book into the eyes and into the minds and the hearts of the people who read it as, as, as being okay? Well, I think of the values and the virtues just like Homer did and, and many, many, many wise and insightful individuals after him. Uh, I think of those things as being like, uh, you know, carved in marble, um, just, you know, on high, um, perfect. Um, like the way that Michelangelo crafted David over so many years. It took him months and months to even find the piece of marble he wanted to use. Or was it granite? It was probably marble. But anyway, he was going around the stone yards looking and looking and looking, you know, every day, look again, didn't find it. Look again, didn't find it. Look again, didn't find it. And so it's type of, you know, the human mind has the ability to perceive things, you know, in, in, in their form, if you will, like the, the highest example of that thing. Uh, that's why justice and truth and beauty and uh, goodness are so interesting because they're perfect in a sense. And we humans are so darn imperfect, right? The Plato's allegory of the cave, right? We don't see clearly. We don't really get it. But those that doesn't reflect poorly upon honor. Honor is honor. Um, humans can approximate it, um, some more than others. But uh, you can't besmirch the value or the virtue. And so if an individual, a human, you know, the way they lived their long life with the same challenges and and um, good and bad and whatever that I have and that everybody else has, they're not going to get it right. They're not going to become an icon of goodness. It's, it's, I think I liked the way that um, Jesus was portrayed in The Last Temptation of Christ, a kind of a sort of controversial movie because he was out there in the wilderness, like straight up scared. Like, I feel like God has abandoned me and I don't know what to do. You know what I mean? And that's different than than to put Jesus up on high and say, he's perfect. What he did was amazingly courageous. He probably went with courage to the cross. You know, he probably didn't. He probably was crying. You know what I mean? So it's like, don't look to the man or a particular person as an exemplar of the value. Look to the value. So as an example, case in point, I did quote Hitler in the book and I, I took some uh, gruff for it by an individual who was Jewish. And, you know, I felt kind of like Larry David from Kirby Enthusiasm because I'm like, I'm Jewish as well. So don't give me that. But, you know, he had a point to make. Like, that's preposterous of you to quote this, you know, devil. Um, how stupid of you. But I think a case can be made that what what was it that Hitler said, right? What was, what was I trying to get at by quoting him? And the quote in question, which unfortunately turned out to be kind of like, a slight misnomer that he said exactly this, but this is something he would say. And it's more or less roughly what he would say. He said, what fortunate it is for those in power that the people do not think. That's a, a quote that I never would want to see us lose track of. It's that important. And coming from Hitler, it's extremely important, right? If little orphan Annie said that, it'd be like, okay, you're cute. Here's a lollipop. But Hitler saying that, I mean, we need to listen to that because Germany is being racked by right-wing extremism. Our country is being racked by right-wing extremism, et cetera, et cetera. So we ought not forget um, that it's thinking that prevents us from being taken over mentally 
for literally by a totalitarian, authoritarian, cult leader, um, selfish type of individual. That's right. And I think that's a that's a very, very important point for people to recognize as well is that in much the same way that I, because I've spent you know a decade and a half in steeped in the concepts of leadership, the 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 methodologies, the the art and science, as it were, as much as I hate that term, um, of of the practice of leadership. One of the things that you develop is a my my mentor when I was in college would call it a spider sense, but you know that the hairs on the back of your neck stand up because you can recognize just as readily over time the good leaders the great leaders, the ones that you would follow to hell, you know, to quote Nathan Fick, who wrote a book called One Bullet Away. He had a quote from one of his uh, senior enlisted Marines when he was a new lieutenant that told him, sir, if they trust you, your Marines will follow you to hell and grab Satan by the balls. And it's a little crass, as Marines can be from time to time. But what he was alluding to there is the great leaders and the, the, the Grants and the Churchills and, you know, the, the, the General Mattises, the folks that people would follow wherever they may go. But it also, importantly, allows you to very quickly sniff out the ones that you don't want to be like, the, one, the, the anti-heroes, as it were, the ones for whom you choose the opposite side of the coin from that behavior. And it's something that I... I kind of fell into and didn't realize I had that until I started to pick up on some of those things. The hairs on the back of the neck would stand up and go, there's something not quite right here. And the reminder that from a quote from a monster that is published in a book is not there for you to admire the person. It's not there for you to adopt all the values of that person. It's there because the words echoing through time and perpetuated in the way that we have here by talking about it, that you did by putting it into your book, ensure that it's not lost. And so that when those monsters start to poke their ugly heads up from around the world, wherever they may be in whatever position they may be in, you can go, wait a minute, I've seen this before. I've heard this described before. This sounds a lot like somebody else um, from history. And I don't like that direction. Um, Intuition is an important thing. It is. And it can't be relied upon, you know, 100% just lock, stock, and barrel because it doesn't work like that. But, you know, women um, know how intuition works because they get that vibe when they see a guy in certain circumstances, right? Uh, Sometimes in a club, but unfortunately, sometimes in a parking lot. And I have this stupid addiction to crime shows. I'm always watching murders be investigated by detectives and solved and it's like that person who got murdered in many many cases didn't see it coming they didn't have their antennae up they couldn't they couldn't see that that was a monster um and there's this haunting nietzsche quote who lived a haunting life um he said uh something like he who does battle with monsters should take care because when you stare into the abyss, the abyss also stares into you. That's right. That's right. It's a fantastic quote. And, you know, you talked about the ability to kind of feel that, that intuition piece. And one of my favorite authors is Malcolm Gladwell. And in his book, Blink, he talks about that intuition, that spidey sense, that something in our subconscious mind that registers something's wrong long before our conscious mind kind of picks up on it and can verbalize um, and I'm going to, I'm going to bastardize a little bit of the story, but he talks about a situation where, um, or a, a clinical test where folks were given two decks of cards and 
they would turn over cards. There was a red deck and a blue deck and they would turn over cards, whichever deck they chose. And every time they got a face card, it was worth a hundred dollars and they got a hundred dollars. And every time they turned over uh, a non-face card, they either lost money or got nothing. Well, it turns out the decks were not the same, right? One deck had more face cards than the other. And what they found was that people could stop whenever they wanted to in the experiment and walk away with whatever they had. And in the post-analysis, what they found was talking to the, the subjects, they found that people said, yeah, I had a feeling something wasn't right with the two decks. Now, there's no way to know, right? The cards are face down. There's no way to know. But that feeling that something's not quite right here preceded their decision to stop by many more cards than you would think when they realized that they were doing that. You should always be wary when psychologists bring you into a room and say, uh, here's two decks of cards and you know, here's this, here's the setup. You ready? Go. You know, you should probably yes. predict something to miss. I mean, that's why I love um, experiments um, often in social psychology, right? The, Two of the most famous ones would be the uh, Stanley Milgram's Obedience to Authority experiment, which I hope you are familiar with as a uh, study, oh, yes. person who studies leadership. And then another one that's even more important for leaders, which is the Stanford Prison Experiment. I mean, those are mind-blowingly mm-hmm. interesting to read about, and there have been movies. Uh, I, I think the movie about the Stanford Prison Experiment that came out just 10 or 15 years ago was amazingly interesting because in part because finally it was Zimbardo's girlfriend who was like, Phil, what the fuck? What is happening with you? Why are you running a a freaking dungeon in the bottom of the psychology department? And he's like, that's right. You know, you're, you're, you're right. I, something has gone crazy wrong. You know what I mean? Here's the evidence for it. I was obsessed. I'm going to stop it. And he stopped it, you know, took four days or something like this, but, um, he finally stopped it in part because his girlfriend who was kind of a neutral observer who had a a kind of a moral compass that wasn't so, I don't know, affected by the desire to be a famous psychologist and just be on the cutting edge of the most interesting stuff. You know, she's like, dude, you're crazy. This is crazy. Wake up. What are you doing? And what a fortunate turn of events, right? I mean, at least for the, the individuals participating in the experiment, that somebody, yeah. there was a neutral observer who had significant enough influence over the individual running the experiment to elicit a change, right? I think that's one of the challenging pieces when you talk about those leader-driven events, um, whether it is the, the response to authority or the, the Stanford prison experiment. You have people who, there's somebody there in a white lab coat, and they're telling you to do something. And they've given you this free reign to do it. And why wouldn't you do it? You you want to think that there's some kind of controls in place. And I think in the worst cases of humanity, some of the people, some of the things that have happened is are as a result of there was no one along the way that really checked it, right? You talked about Valkyrie now. Killing Hitler would have been one thing. But was there no one in his path, in his trajectory that ever said, wait a minute? Do you understand what you're proposing here? And more importantly, do you understand the second and third order effects of the things that you're getting up and saying right now and how people who don't have an inside look into how you think and how you perceive things are going to interpret those things and then act on them? That's a horrifying human condition. Out of out of a million people, and I think Germany probably had what, like 50 million of them or 100, I, can't, I don't know how many Germans were around in 1939, but and America has 300 and however million people out of just 1 million, you're going to find some absolute nutcases, some total sociopaths, 
some folks who would steal from your grandmother if they could, some folks who would rape and kill your grandmother. You know what I mean? Like in a country this large, there's always going to be that guy um, or in some cases girl, gal, who will fill that role, which is why if you've been watching the January 6th commission proceedings, it's like this guy, John Eastman, the shit he cooked up is shockingly stupid, not stupid, diabolical. You know, he's like, eh, let's just do it anyway. You know, let's just let's just throw that election out. You know, here's my here's my uh, my belief system and my my rationale. What do you say? Can you do this for us? Come on, come on, Mister Pence, do this for us. You know what I mean? There's always going to be that guy, and so you know, you put Abu Ghraib prison together, and there's always going to be that guy who runs That's right. the place like like he is. You know. Uh, Satan incarnate, and that's right. So that's why those those the situation and the environment is so terribly critical. Because you know, uh, I don't think that um, John Eastman would have tried that shit to um, Dwight Eisenhower. He would have been out on his ass the next day. Um, but in the Trump administration, anything goes. It's like a freaking circus with the chimpanzee in charge, um, and and Abu Ghraib. You know, nasty, nasty, nasty things happen there. Why? Because it just wasn't, I mean, I, I should probably ask you my, my memory and, and Philip Zimbardo actually did do like a autopsy on Abu Ghraib. And he was mm-hmm. kind of like, it's really not the full responsibility of these individuals. Yes. When you look at them holding a guy on a dog leash, you know what I mean? A naked Islamic person on a dog leash, which is like about as nasty a human as you can be. That's not mm-hmm. exactly their fault. And, uh, you know, you kind of hear the grumblings like, what? what's up with this academic loser? But it's like, think about what he's saying. He's saying in his particular situation and environment and culture, things can happen that you wouldn't, that, you know, wouldn't happen in Lincoln's White House. Yeah, the, the, the frailty of some of our principles sometimes is is probably one of the things that is most concerning when I consider, you know, and I'm and I'm not speaking about others in lieu of myself. I'm included in this in this pool of humanity as well, that, you know, given the right set of circumstances, the right set of inputs, the right set of stressors and conditions, people are capable of all manner of things. I mean, we study Abu Ghraib as part of our military education process. We also study, you know, the the, the systematic destruction of villages in Vietnam. And we look back at some of the war crimes that happened during World War II. And you look at the Imperial Japanese and the way they treated the Okinawans in, as I was stationed in Okinawa for four years. And you hear the, to this day, the echoes of the Okinawan perspective. In fact, if you ever chance to come upon someone who identifies as being from Okinawa, they don't largely consider themselves to be Japanese. And that is a byproduct of the Imperial Japanese attitude towards the Okinawans during World War II. And that was a peaceful, quiet island that turned into a hellscape because the Imperial Japanese did the things that they did during that time under the leadership of the day. And the idea that we are somehow now immune to that because we have Twitter and Facebook and I can Google anything that I want, that there's no way anybody would overstep some of these seemingly too high to clear hurdles of morality is, is is simply not the case, given the right set of circumstances in the enabling environment. That's that's one of the reasons why Margaret Atwood did the world a favor by writing The Handmaid's Tale. Um, and, you know, maybe uh, Coppola did the world a service by putting together an amazing um, movie, Apocalypse Now, which in its current um, 
you know, iteration is like three hours. I, I sort of had to turn it off after an hour and a half. Cause I was like, I feel like I'm going insane watching this movie. What's happening. You know what I mean? It's like, this just goes on over and over and over again. The way the um, Athenians conducted themselves in the Peloponnesian war, bad, you know? So it's just, it's just part of humanity. It sucks. Each of us has these angels and demons, um, and, you know, figuratively within us. Uh, some have more than others, right? Um, you know, somebody like Lincoln was just the right person for the job at that moment because he was mm-hmm. ready to be there. Um, we should probably thank our lucky stars that, that he was. Um, it just, it happens repeatedly. And Handmaid's Tale is like set in the future. So let's just assume it can happen in the future and prepare ourselves, try to improve our institutions, which have all been eroded down to nothing. I mean, tell me an institution that is now above reproach that has the respect of the people. I mean, maybe the military comes close, but then again, I just mentioned apocalypse now. So, you know what I mean? It's like, um, there's no institution, the Catholic church. No. Uh, you know what I mean? The media, no politicians, no, the Supreme court, no, uh, academia, right. no. So it's like, what's happening with our institutions and they're all led by people, right? Every institution is absolutely silent. You know, when the lights are off, it's the people that animate it. And so something is wrong with, with too many of us when we let our institutions go like this. And I, there's probably a Marine, you know, named Smedley D Butler. Um, of course. Really interesting guy. And, you know, he, he gave some quotes from back in the day when he's like, I feel like I'm working for, you know, um, you know, United oil or whatever, um, or uh, U S banana. I forget the companies that he was referencing, but he's like, I don't even feel like I'm a military officer anymore. I feel like I'm getting the corporation's backs down here in the Caribbean or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like you could just see the institutions being almost like clawed at by people who are selfish and, um, you know, immoral and, and otherwise unsuited for leadership. I mean, that was one of Eisenhower's cautions as he left office to the to the incoming administration and the Congress and the people was beware the military industrial complex. He coined that term on his way out of office as president in the 50s. And that is a term that is still referred to today. And and to your point, I mean, I I have a vested interest in maintaining the respect of the American public. We serve at the pleasure of the president and we have a very uh, specific set of responsibilities that, that seems to grow constantly, but it's important, especially to those of us that are avid readers and avid learners and consider ourselves to be part of the profession of arms, that we maintain that trust with the public. There are institutions where that is not held to the same level, the profession of X is or why is not held in the same regard. Um, yeah. The 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 Marine Corps itself has a has a chip on its shoulder and always has post World War II and arguably even before that when the Army and Navy and and whatnot were fighting over uh, potentially disbanding the Marine Corps. So we have a very institutionalized fear of being disbanded for irrelevancy, for imperfections, for failing to either execute the dollars that are provided to us by the Congress and by the American people, or just in general, becoming so irrelevant to the conversation that we were done away with. So, and and I think to a lesser degree, um, and of course I'm biased, but the other military branches as well. And that's why you see when 
generals go and speak before Congress, they're in their best, right? They're in their best uniforms. They present themselves in a professional way. They take pride in the way that they present themselves and they speak because we don't wear suits and ties by and large, but they want to provide confidence to Congress and to, and therefore by extension to the American people, that they are indeed being good shepherds of American values. And when criticisms come our way, and they are many, and they are warranted in almost all cases, we take it very seriously that that is an important facet of what we do. And and when institutions fail to recognize that, whether it be you know the, the various executive branch entities, or the Supreme Court, or the Congress, or the media, they don't have the same level, and somebody may correct me on this, they don't have the same level of professional fear of irrelevancy, I think, sometimes that, that we do, because our budget can dry up and go away if we fail to perform and we fail to uphold those American values that people represent through us via the flags we wear and the insignia that, that we're granted. If we lose that, we lose the faith of, of those folks, we cease to be a relevant um, entity. And I think that's something that for some of those institutions, we may need to be reminded of that. Yeah, I, um, I'm i a huge fan of um, Star Trek The Next Generation and uh, some of the other Star Treks that came afterwards. The first, the original was kind of kooky. I love um, Captain Picard, the way that they wrote him, the way that um, Patrick Stewart played him. Uh, I think that could be, you know, that could be your, your thesis at a war college or whatever. It was like the leadership lessons with Captain Picard or whatever, because he constantly faces challenges. Obviously, Starfleet is... Um, a, you know, amazing and, you know, respected institution. And there are instances when they don't act like that. And it's usually Picard who has to be like, I refuse to go along with this. You can fire me if you want, court martial me, but I'm not going to do it because I believe in the principles of Star Trek. And so he's a fantasy character. He's not perfect. Actually, if you study um, his character, you realize that he has foibles, uh, especially if you watch the most recent things called Picard seasons one and two. He's not perfect, but he usually um, exemplifies the values of Starfleet, which are pretty laudable um, principles. And it's interesting to see that constantly get challenged by this, that, and the other. And, you know, one thing that they don't have to cope with, because this is how Gene Roddenberry wrote um, Star Trek is they don't have to deal with money, but, Money, the love of money is probably more or less the root of all evil. Maybe not exactly, maybe not in all cases, but let's just say, you know, if you were to examine America critically um, and other civilizations that have come before us, you would see that money always plays a huge role in deteriorating mm. individuals' um, character. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting you say that. And, you know, I referenced earlier the, you know, the, the Marine Corps has the Commandant's professional reading list and the other services have similar reading lists. And you mentioned Star Trek. And while I don't think any of the Star Trek books are on the reading list, I can tell you that Starship Troopers is on the reading list. Ender's Game is on the reading list. Those are sci-fi futuristic books that are on the reading list. And you ask yourself, well, why? Why would you put Ender's <laughs> Game on there? Well, if you've ever read Ender's Game, you know, Ender's Game and the whole series around Ender um, are is, is a masterclass in the development of leadership. And there are principles to be taken. And that's what I love about both your book and, and, and doing this podcast is I can reach into the most obscure corners of, of society 
and there are lessons to learn. I don't know that anybody goes, you know, if I'm going to, if I want to learn about leadership, the one book about leadership, maybe you pick up, you know, the leader's bookshelf, great book, fantastic reading. Um, maybe I want to read Grant's biography, or maybe I want to read something about Winston Churchill, right? We have those names that roll off the tongue. I don't know how many people go, you know what, Jean-Luc Picard, Star Trek, that's where I should start. Or, or Obi-Wan Kenobi from Star Wars, no, right, you know, right. the, you know, the leadership that's there. Um, yeah. You can find these lessons. And, and I use leadership because it's my easy fallback. But in any field of study, I'm sure that in, um, in education, that there are the names that people know just right off the top of their heads. But there are things to learn about how to educate from people that you might not ever consider. So, when, when we look at the book, right, in, in, in the various chapters, you have quotes from across a huge spectrum. I'm sure that you, you probably have a quote book that even out, outsizes mine. Um, how did you curate some of the quotes? I mean, obviously, some things made it onto the, didn't make it into the book and ended up on the cutting room floor. How did you go about, um, one, determining the themes of the chapters, right? You've got 14 chapters. You cover a myriad of principles. Certainly, some of those didn't make it. And then how did you cull the, the herd of quotes and words about those particular topics and actually curate them into that space. So in uh, 2004, I started um, this website called valuesofthewise.com. And, you know, it, it is what it sounds like, the values that wise people are into. Um, and so I'm just kind of putting out a theory. You know, some people would say, well, you don't have love. Why don't you have love? Um, that's a fair point. You know, I do have, uh, you know, dedication, responsibility, magnanimity, um, kindness, you know, maybe I should have put love, but, um, point is, you know, I, I went through and thought, what are, what are the values that I believe in slash feel like a wise person would also kind of get behind maybe kind of coming from the perspective of like Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of needs, you know, the psychological theory from the the 60s. Um, so, you know, I just kind of put it out there. I, I believe that there are, you know, roughly somewhere between 20 and 40 values and virtues that are the most interesting uh, and and really kind of hold water. And a lot of them are, are the oldest ones around, you know, things that Socrates was discussing back, in, you know, in the beginning, or that, you know, Confucius said, uh, Chinese society needs to conform to these principles if we are to, you know, do well. And so, um, I, you know, I, I have 28 of them in these 14 chapters. Um, some have two, some have three. And, um, so how I, how I came up with them is I just sort of, I don't know, shot from the hip and thought, you know, but it kind of became tested by me searching for quotes like a madman over the last, you know, 17, 18 years. So if ever there's a quote that I like, it, it, basically one that kind of jumps out at me that, that screams, this is about values. This is about virtues. This is a quote that you want to write down to remember because it's good. Um, I can fit it into my structure, um, the values of the wise. So, you know, if there's a quote that has, even if it has the word love in it, I can fit it into one of my other categories for the most part. In other words, I don't usually sit there and scratch my head and think, oh, I wish I had a category called miscellaneous. You know, I can fit almost anything in. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I've been, I've been building a, a, a database that, you know, any of your listeners could go search. It's free. It's ad free. 
Uh, they go to valuesofthewise.com and then go up to resources and then click on um, searchable quotations database. And then, um, you know, you can punch in a couple fields, um, what you're looking for, be it a keyword or a keyword based on, you know, people of this gender or a keyword based on this value or a keyword based on people who came from the East or people who came from, you know, Western, the Western tradition, uh, et cetera. And out will come one of my 36,000 quotes. Um, mm-hmm. So to answer the other part of your question, how did I get to the um, 1,800 quotes that are in the book, Building Life Value? Almost random. I almost just kind of, you know, shoveled them from the database into a Word document and just kind of went with it. I mean, did I read it to see if any of them mm-hmm. were just sort of like duds? I mean, yeah, there were some I thought were maybe a little too spicy or too esoteric or whatever, but for the most part, I already had all my quotes just sitting there, which is one of the reasons I can turn on a paper or a blog in, you know, one hour or three hours because my quotes are sitting right there, just easily found. It, it is a great resource listener. If you haven't gone there, I'll be sure to put a link in the show notes, but um, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic Thank reference you. for any number of topics. I mean, I, I, it is, I would say with all of the searching that I have done um, and some of these episodes are very challenging to find, you know, provenance and context for some of these quotes. Um, your website has, uh, has been the source of, of many a great one. And um, I mean, if it's, you know, if I wasn't so hell bent on making sure that I put pen to paper and copy them all into a book, I mean, you could fill with 36, <laughs> 36,000 quotes. I mean, it's, it, I'm glad the resource is there. And if you ever find yourself short on cash to keep the website running, um, let me know and I'll put it out to oh, the listeners, you. if not crowdsource fund it myself. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that, it is a really, really great. I mean, if you want a snapshot into the mind of somebody who has clearly taken the time to put together a, a comprehensive um, categorized list of, of quotes in a nice package. I mean, the book is great. It, it, it is absolutely, and I will put a link to that as well. Um, and hopefully some of the listeners will go and, and give it a, give it a read because it is, it is fantastic. And, um, you know, Jason, I'm, I'm grateful. Um, unfortunately, um, so that was put out in 2005 and, uh, I printed a bunch and they're sitting in my wife's in my closet, but they're not on Amazon. Um, and I don't sell them because I don't really want to have to deal with sales tax and all this. I run, I run two of my books through Amazon and two of them building life value and living life value. I just have my closet. So if anybody were to email me and say, Hey, can you give it to me? I'll just give it to them. You know, if they pay me, you know, four bucks in shipping, I'll ship, I'll ship my book. So that's how they would get that book. Perfect. And I, and I certainly will. And I'm, I'm grateful that you provided me with a copy. It's something that I will certainly, I've already started marking it up and it'll be a, it'll be a reference um, for me for a long time to come. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Um, I appreciate it. Jason, you want to jump into the lightning round and go through a few fun questions here? All right, let's do that. Let me put on my, uh, my, my cup. Okay. Right. I'm good. <laughs> so the first question is probably one of my favorites. What is a book that you are currently reading or most recently read? Okay, I've um, I've got it on my desk actually. It is um, the Western Intellectual Tradition by Jacob Bronowski. Um, Bronowski is a super interesting individual, a real man of letters. This guy, I don't, I can't believe he had twenty four hours in a day. I mean, the stuff he was doing in the in the sixties and seventies in regard to you know, basically, you know, he was kind of famous for his book called The Ascent of Man. Um, as in how did man get from like, you know, chimpanzee like all the way to where we are today, we, you know, 
Galileo, uh, you know, we went to the moon, um, you know, art and all the stuff. It's like, what an ascent that was. No animal besides us has even come close. Elephants are cool, but they're basically the same as they've always been. Right. Alligators haven't changed, uh, you know, at all. Humans have had a, a absolutely astronomical, um, climb. We can produce people like, you know, Carl Sagan and, uh, you know, Miles Davis and, and on and on and on. Amazing. Um, obviously we got that dark underbelly, right? So for every Miles mm-hmm. Davis we produce, there's going to be a, a Bernie Madoff. Um, maybe not That's one right. for one, but you hope not. Well, we've, we've got Michelangelo to, to brag about, you know, we've got, um, what George Washington, et cetera. So we're good. No, we're not. You know what I mean? There's always going to be that, uh, potential for somebody to, to go astray. Anyway, so Bernowski's um, like real deal intellectual man who has thought about all these important things about how humanity is where we are and what some of our um, downfalls can be and some of our amazing strengths. Um, And I'm kind of a Western intellectual tradition type of a guy. I don't think that, um, you know, the West, you know, people like John Locke and uh, Rousseau and, you know, uh, Kant, these people are not above reproach not by any means, but we right. ignore them at our own peril. And uh, I, I just happen to be Western. So that's kind of, you know, it's easy for me to, to dig into the intellectual, you know, um, gold mine that is the West, Western Civ, um, you know, wisdom, history, philosophy, um, the humanities, than it is for me to do that with, you know, Eastern or Indian or whatever, um, you know, ideas. So I'm a Western guy. I'm not saying it's, it's kind of like a football team. It's like I support the Patriots or whatever, not the world's greatest team, not above reproach, but that's my team. So I'm kind of like Western intellectual guy and uh, I think it's worth looking into. And there's somebody, there's somebody in an Eastern culture that is sitting on a podcast, having a conversation about Eastern intellectualism and its superiority. So there's, Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. Um, All right. Number two, if you could have dinner with anyone alive or dead, who would it be? Uh, My father. Uh, maybe you're going for somebody, uh, you know, more famous. Um, you're like, uh, what Not about Marcus Aurelius? Wouldn't you want to do with Marcus Aurelius? Uh, <laughs> I would, I would, but um, I think my relationship with my father is is mentally um, vexing enough that if, if if I could have dinner with him and he was mentally and physically well, um, I could learn heck of a lot from him. Um, you know, and uh, I sometimes think if you know if I could go back in time and just kind of have a chance meeting. Um, you know, magic type stuff. Um, it would be just the coolest thing in the world to meet the guy. I mean, he was a physician. Uh, he was a son of immigrants. He said when he went off to college, all he had was one suit. That's it. Became the president of his fraternity. Uh, we lived in Los Angeles. He became um, a reserve officer in the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department and achieved the rank of captain. Um, so just a kind of a towering man in a way, and yet also exactly the opposite of that. And I won't share too many of his, um, you know, um, um, drawbacks as an, as an individual, but for somebody like me who likes to chew on things, um, my father can provide ample, uh, opportunity because he was so much of everything. Sure. No, that, I think that's a great answer. And no, there is no, there are no right or wrong answers to these. I've heard, I've heard a variety of answers throughout, uh, 
throughout my time. And um, I, I think that's a great one. And I think it's something, you know, we talk all the time about the lessons to take from an episode. And that's something here. I mean, we only have the family that we have and we don't always get along with them. I know I don't. And I'm, you know, and they can be challenging, but there, there will probably come a time where you will no longer have access to that person. And um, for you to say that about your father, I'm sure is, um, is quite the touching tribute. So thank you for that. Thank you. All right. Number, number three, if you could be present at any event in history, and I've had to kind of change this question over time, you can be visible and a participant, or you can be an invisible observer at any event in history. What would it be? Oh gosh, darn it. That's a tough one. I mean, that's really tough. I think it'd be easier to say, can you list a hundred events you would like to be, have been part of? Um, and see, this is how the questions evolve. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's hard. Um, I'll just kind of pull one from the bottom of the stacks, you know, maybe not surprising to you, but surprising to other folks maybe who, who know me or whatever. I'd, I'd say maybe like the battle of Thermopylae. Um, that's just so interesting to me how that went down. I'd like to see, um, what was legend and what was true. And if, if I could just see King uh, Leonidas swinging a sword, I think that would, I would be like, wow, this is going in my, in my memoir. Yep. You're going to have to take, well, you'll have to take a camera with you for that because I think, uh, <laughs> I think the modern day, the modern day 300 fans would love to see that. So yeah. um, no, good, good answer. Um, all right. What is something that you used to think one way about, but have since completely changed your mind? Um, these are really good questions. I gotta, I gotta uh, give you props, man. You're you're turning out to be uh, far more intellectually capable than how should I say, um, than average. Uh, I'll put it like that. You know, mildly yeah, above I, average. I'll take it. I don't, I don't look um, too deeply into um, podcasters before I throw in a a, uh, a query. Um, and so you kind of, it's almost, for me, it's almost like you never know who you're gonna meet, and I never want questions ahead of time because I want to keep it interesting for myself and I don't want to get perfectionistic with my planning. So I'm just like, just, you know, throw me a pitch. No, no planning. I already know how to hit, um, hit balls. So send them, send them over. Um, so anyway, it's been, it's been a pleasure mm. to see how, how interesting of a person uh, you are. Um, as to this question, well, um, I, now I've forgotten it. <laughs> what was it again? <laughs> what, is, what is something you used to think one way about, yes, but have since yes. completely changed your mind? completely oh my gosh you know i might have to um hedge on this and say i don't know that i've completely changed my mind because to some degree if you completely changed your mind you were you were like really off base either then or now and mm. neither is particularly um you Fair. know you know so but i do think that there is a long list of quotations one can choose to validate the fact that uh, a wise person does not decide at a given point in their life something they believe, because um, obviously many of our beliefs and values and moral stances, or whatever, can be very nuanced. So you don't decide these things and then you know take a chisel and chisel them into stone and be like, "Here's what I think from now on." That's foolishness, and there are a lot of quotes to back me up on that. Um, I think it was probably Winston Churchill who said, "If you can't." change your mind you can't change anything and when you look at uh certain individuals that are known to be great leaders you know i'm thinking the obvious choices might be like eisenhower um john kennedy those are the first two that came to mind 
folks who were known to be careful thinkers. They didn't just, they weren't just these men of action who took actions and then paper, tried to paper over later what they did, you know, or whatever. It's like they've really carefully considered things. Um, and um, in fact, uh, Kennedy went to Eisenhower one time. Um, I believe it was during, it was either during or just after one of the crises, like um, Bay of Pigs. I think it was probably Bay of Pigs. And he was seeking advice from his, you know, his elder and, and Eisenhower. Um, the, the question he asked him that was fundamental was, how did you go about getting your information? Uh, your advisors obviously want to advise you. And, you know, Lincoln was famous for having advisors that didn't necessarily agree with him and would kind of That's right. fight amongst themselves and he would decide. But Eisenhower was like, how did you determine what you determined? Because th therein will lie the clue to where things went wrong or where you did well. Um, mm. well don't just tell me, you know, what you did. Tell me how you got your information and just kind of dissect who's giving you what um, advice and why and what are your premises and, you know, did you, cause this helps you to kind of root out the idea that, you know, the human mind very deep, you know, very passionate and we kind of want what we want and believe what we believe. And so it would have been very easy for Kennedy to be on autopilot during the Cuban missile crisis and be like, I've got this, I know what to do. If, you know, Khrushchev is a moron or whatever, you know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. You really have to like slow down and question your assumptions and think about alternatives and just, play it out. And that's why they say chess masters are so intelligent because they can see moves far ahead that of, of amateurs. Mm. So I'll, I'll put a period at the end of that paragraph and leave you with that. I like that a lot. And you're talking about people that came from diametrically opposed ends of the spectrum, really. I mean, with Kennedy and Eisenhower, and there were a lot of differences that they had there, but the acknowledgement of the experience there is, is very, very interesting. Um, those interactions are always fascinating. Uh, one of my favorite traditions, this is a random aside. Um, one of my favorite traditions is the, the outgoing president leaving a note for the incoming president. And what I wouldn't give, and you can see some of these, if you go visit presidential museums, you can see some of those notes because they become part of the public record. Okay. The, the, the thought process there, because oftentimes you're being replaced by somebody who does not share the same political ideology as you. And to be able to go and see the final thoughts that somebody puts on a piece of paper and leaves in the desk drawer in the Oval Office for the incoming president to read, that's a fascinating glimpse at the way that the human mind works. It's an acknowledgement of succession, but it is also um, an opportunity to share wisdom. And, uh, and I think it's just one of the, one of the great things that, uh, that, that the presidents of the United States have historically done. And I don't know how far back it goes, but I find it to be very interesting. I was going to say, it's also interesting to see some of the uh, grammatical mistakes that uh, George W. Bush made with his notes. Sorry. Go, go ahead. <laughs> No, that's very true. I love seeing the, the marked up speeches from the various presidents as well. My wife and I are probably older in our, our minds than we actually are, but we like going to presidential museums and you can see some of the marked up notes and you can see that, you know, pause for applause notes and, and things like that. So that is funny. When I met my wife uh, the first night, um, she told me she was a poli sci major and I, I happened to ask her because I was thinking about um, the, the analogy, the allegory of the cave. I said, what did you think about Plato's Republic? I'm sure you read that. And she just got like deer in headlights, like, 
dude, what, what is this like? You're quit. I just met you. You're quizzing me about um, <laughs> so public. Didn't work out very well, but um, but the relationship survived. <laughs> well, here you are. The proof. The proof is in the longevity. So, yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So two questions left. One serious. One totally fun. Serious one. What book, movie, TV show, um, or yeah, I think book, movie, TV show uh, is probably a good swath. Would you recommend to somebody to have maximum impact on their life? Hmm. I don't think you could do better than to look at um, seasons three through seven of Star Trek: The Next Generation. They have it on uh, on Blu-ray, and so there's you know it's those things were made in like eighty nine, ninety, ninety one, so they were not the most technologically sophisticated shows but they put mm. you know a million dollars in each episode they had great writers great actors the stories they delved into i mean i have cried during star treks like seriously during like five percent of them i cry because it's just so meaningful so interesting uh, and mm. i just love picard so now seasons one and two were a little funky but seasons three through seven are amazing i mean three names that come to mind would be the inner light um tapestry and the best of both worlds. I mean, just amazing television. Sure. Yeah, that's great. So listener, if you're keeping track at home, that's two now plugs for Star Trek uh, here from Jason. <laughs> so certainly if you haven't watched, it's now is the time. <laughs> All right, Jason, last question. Um, just for just for fun here. If you could or desire to pursue uh, a world record through the Guinness Book of World Records, what would it be and why? I guess it wouldn't be hot dog eating. My wife and I saw a hot dog eating contest the other night and we looked at each other, we looked at each other like, dude, America is becoming idiocracy. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, the movie idiocracy, but yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll change my mm-hmm. recommendation to watch that movie because I know the, um, the writer who I think is, it might be the guy who, who did um, Beavis and Butthead, something like that. He's, he's like a satirist. He, he has lamented lately that America has been sliding toward this what he thought was a joke i mean kind of not really but he's like there's just evidence of idiocy all around us um so yeah not hot dog eating because that's just the dumbest thing i could think of um (laughs) sure and and is like peculiarly american like they don't have hot dog eating contests in like you know singapore but it just wouldn't even occur, occur to them i guess record probably like greatest number of classic books ever read you know i was just talking with somebody today who thinks that wuthering heights is a fantastic book like he's like it's in my top three my wife is like i love that you know when she was reading watership down the other day she's like this book is so good it's about rabbits and i love it um or you know the way somebody feels about charlie and the chocolate factory or um you know um the um harry potter series or whatever it's like there's just so much interesting stuff that has been written and um i'm going to try to take a whack at um middle march next which is a george Eliot uh book it looks at the issues with victorian england but kind of more importantly the things mm. that humans you know always do from generation to generation the challenges uh, individuality versus conformity how to make moral choices um things like this some people say that middle march is one of the greatest books ever written I ha- you know, believe it or not, I actually have a, a, a dearth of, of classic books un- under my belt. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was 16, 
And so, whereas I took honors English in uh, freshman and sophomore year, by the time I was a junior, I just, my, you know, my mother was gone. My father was mentally ill. I I wasn't going to take it and nobody was going to make me. Um, and, and so I didn't read those books, you know, Siddhartha and, um, you know, the sun also rises and, um, you know, a farewell to arms, just some of these, these books that, you know, I feel like I, like I, um, could have done better, should do better. And I think that when you look at, um, the way that somebody named Mortimer J. Adler looks at books, you know, he's, he's, he's Mr. Great Books guy, Western intellectual tradition guy. And, um, he believes that adults should read good books and they should be challenging books and they should be ones that have, that are part of the, the canon of, of excellent books, you know, start mm-hmm. there, you know, you don't have to read the Odyssey, you know, um, um, to get, what do I want to say? The Odyssey is only going to be like one little snapshot of what, you know, those great minds who've written those great works have to teach us, but you shouldn't ignore the Odyssey either because there are lessons in that. Um, and gosh, with YouTube, there's just no excuse for not getting into a book. It's just, just choose one, choose Moby Dick. You know what I mean? Like can't go wrong with Moby Dick. Super interesting. That's right. Deals with leadership, deals with what lies within the human heart. If you want to go, go deep and dark, go uh, Joseph Conrad's heart of darkness, 1984. Mm. Um, these things are just so good. So interesting, so relevant. And if you can internalize the messages of the book and get through all of the pages, then you will never be without those lessons. Like, I never will forget 1984, uh, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these books, um, obviously Huckleberry Finn was just hugely impactful for people. Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you get to get into these books, then they will, uh, there's a quote, it's like, don't see how many great books you can get through, see how many great books can get through to you. Uh, so I would wish I was mm. more well-read. Yeah, and if that's not a perfect way to cap off the episode, I don't know what is. The, the the quote about don't see how many great books you can get into, but see how many great books can get into you. I mean, that's that's fantastic, Jason. And this has been an absolute pleasure. It's been Thank wonderful you. to have you on here. Um, I, I'll give you an opportunity if, if the listeners want to reach out to you. Uh, what is the best way for them to find you? Um, I think going to valuesofthewise.com would be good. There's a contact page. Um, I'm super easy to contact. I've tried to contact people and, you know, they're like, talk to me on Twitter. It's like, that's not going to work. Not going to, you know, you're going to ignore me. But I put my email just right there. You have something to say to me, say it. Um, And like I said, if you want a copy of Building Life of Value, um, my wife will probably thank you for giving me $4 so that I can uh, ship it off to you and get out of the closet. (laughs) Uh, um, And uh, yeah, so that would be values the wise goes really deep i mean it's almost like foolishly um designed because i really don't make uh money from it uh you know it cost me uh 20 bucks a month to keep the thing um you know um hosted or whatever you call it Uh, and i put so much time and energy and money into it with my blogs my podcasts the quote search engine um um um, um, there's one other thing i'm forgetting Um, oh i've got these these little tools that can help you get to know your values or your, or your, uh, moral, um, your moral theories, basically the, the ways in which you tend to make moral decisions. 
you know, it takes a while. It's a lot of mouse work to sit there and read, you know, the thing and then click, you know, either from one to 10, you know, for example, that's how they work. Mm. But if you get through to the bottom, it'll provide you with um, some pretty interesting information, I think. And hey, it's free. If you don't like the results, you can be like, well, that didn't cost me anything. That's great. And, you know, and, and my listeners are precisely the type of people who I'm sure will go there. So don't be surprised if you see an uptick in the number of visitors to the page yeah. in the near future. Um, and, and listeners, I will tell you again, I'll plug it again. The, the book is fantastic. It would be $4 uh, or $6 or $50 of postage well spent to, to get a hold of it. So Jason, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again for joining me on the podcast. Um, and, and I can't wait to he- see the, the response from folks to this because this has been great. Yes, yeah, so surprisingly good. That's why I said I I don't I don't put up with forty five minute podcasts because I just uh, it's like you know it's like taking an airplane from uh, Orlando to uh, Miami. It's like as soon as you go up, you got to come right back down. So uh, that's right. It's cool, we got cool. We got to talk this long, and uh, and it was definitely fun. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod. Or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you. Welcome your feedback. And thanks, as always, for listening.